that. At the beginning of a series like this, um, I need you to kind of, let's go back to like kindergarten, put your thinking caps on, okay? Um, and the reason that I say that is because I got to roll out a lot of context. I got I to talk a little bit about this book so that we understand where we're going. Without context, it makes it really difficult to understand what James is trying to say to us and really what we're trying to, what, what we're trying to drive to. And so if you would, I want you to just kind of hang with me, lean in for the next little while um, as I give a lot of information, and then we're going to kind of get into the practical part of, of this message. This is going to be the framework for the rest of this, of this series. So James, the book of James, is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. The book of James practically and faithfully reminds all of us how to live. At the end of the day, from perseverance to true faith to controlling one's tongue, submitting to God's will, having patience, come on somebody, right? This book aids readers in living authentically and wisely for Jesus. Now, this is what the, the rub's going to be in this series. A lot of commentators, scholars, theologians look at the book of James and they, they compare it to the book of Romans, all right? If you've read the book of Romans, you understand anything about Paul's uh, theology to which he gives a lot of in the book of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, uh, you, you'll read about great overtones of grace. Come on, someone shout grace. Grace. And we talk a lot about grace around here. We are saved by grace. And it's through faith. Nothing else. You can't earn it. You can't build it. You can't get it. You can't buy it at Walmart. Grace is something that is given to us in and through Jesus. Okay? So you can't earn it. It is a free gift of God through his son Jesus who he sent, died on the cross, uh, was buried, rose again. Now we have access to him. That's, that's Paul's teaching, a quick summary in theology. A lot of people don't like the book of James because James doesn't talk a lot about grace. I'd actually say for the most part he doesn't talk anything about grace. He doesn't talk much about the church. He doesn't talk much about theology. He doesn't talk much about anything like that. His whole premise is to help our lives line up with the grace that was given. Okay? He will say at one moment, he will say, we don't want you to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And a lot of people get twisted on this because they think, well, here we go. Here's that whole side where we're just law-driven and we just have to work and we have to do these things. And, and there we go, just being people who are constantly doing, doing, doing. And that's not what he's saying. What he's trying to do is realign how we look at things and say, listen, our lives are a response to the grace that's been given to us. We're not doing to earn anything. We're not doing to get anything. We're simply trying to align our life with the grace that's been given. The goodness of God, I want my life to align with that. Come on, somebody. I want my life to be a shout-out to God's grace. And that's what James, the book of James, is really about. Can our lives be a testament to God's goodness in our lives? Can they be a testament to his miracle working power in our lives? Can, can our lives, in the doing of our lives, the day-to-day -day exercising of our lives, can they be this picture of how God has worked and done in our lives? And that's what James is really saying. So James is not disagreeing with Paul. He's simply saying, listen, Paul's right. Now I want to help aid in how we line it up on the day-to-day, -day, the everyday life that we, that we live. Possibly one of the earliest New Testament writings between A.D. 40 and 50, the book is believed to have been written by G, or James, who is the brother of Jesus. James was a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He would say that himself at the beginning of his letter. We'll read that in just a minute. And this is the way that he would introduce him, himself. It's a popular name in the form of the Old Testament named Jacob, and there were several men who bore this name 
throughout New Testament history. James is the brother of Jesus, and it seems to be the most likely candidate for the author of this letter. And he does not identify himself that way, interestingly. He doesn't say, yo, this is James, the brother of Jesus, so listen to me. That's not what he says. He, he, wants, he wants all of us to understand that the authority of his letter, the authority of writing, is not because of who he was related to, but because of who he was submitted to. There's a massive difference between that. So he wasn't name dropping for the sake of name dropping. He didn't want to say, let everybody know, I'm I'm, I'm Jesus' brother, because who wants that responsibility anyways? Right? I mean, could you imagine growing up as James? Like, James, can't you be more like your brother, Jesus? (laughs) To which James is like, no, I can't walk on water. Leave it alone, Mom. Right? And so James doesn't want to come from that perspective. He wants to come from the place that he is a servant, just like you and I are of, of Jesus. Interestingly enough, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, and John 7, 1 through 5, paints an interesting picture for us, and that's this, that in Jesus' earthly ministry, James actually, actually didn't believe in who Jesus was. His very own brother didn't believe in, in who he was, the Christ, the Messiah. The Bible tells us that. And then there's this radical transformation that takes place. So I want to encourage you with this. And why do we need to know that? Because even for some of us who have felt the closest to Jesus at one point or another and we start to doubt in our life, I want you to know that anything is possible. James doubted his very brother but would come around to write one of the letters of the New Testament encouraging us as people to follow Jesus in profound ways. So I don't know where you are at this weekend. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with Jesus. I don't know what you're doubting, but we are studying the life and the letter of a man who doubted who Jesus was, his very brother, but would come to this place where he would write one of the most impassioned letters of the New Testament, encouraging us to live this great life for Jesus. Now, we have no record of this in the Bible, but tradition and and some history would tell us that James was martyred in around about A.D. 62. The story goes like this, is that the Pharisees in Jerusalem so hated James' testimony of Jesus that they they cast him down from the temple and beat him with with clubs. The story also tells us that as James was dying, he took cues from Jesus and prayed the very same prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. James was a powerful man, a disciple, one who loved Jesus. We know that James was a Jew. Bible tells us, Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5 that he was a married man. James was persistent in prayer. The Bible tells us that he loved to pray. He'll actually write in his letter, the the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So we got to get passionate about prayer. We're going to talk about that later in this series. And as you read the letter of James, you will discover that these, these Christians that he were writing to, they were having some problems in their personal lives. They were going through difficult moments. Come on, show of hands. How many of you have been through a difficult moment or two in life? All of us have. All of us will. So he's writing to them. And, and life was upsetting and it was demanding and culture was pushing in on them and society was changing. And much like we are today, James was writing to encourage them and they were they were frustrated they were dealing with uh, temptations towards sin some of the believers were catering to the rich and then at the same time they were dealing with being exploited by them and one of the major problems that James will focus on in this letter and, the, and, and, and as he's speaking to the church is the failure on their part to live how they professed how many of you have ever been frustrated at that one point or another we call it hypocrisy, don't we? 
We deal with this issue of hypocrisy, and James is trying to say, listen, if you're gonna, if you're gonna profess something, then we've got, we've got to get some things equalized here. Now, I want to just let you know some. We're gonna talk about this hypocrisy issue. If you've ever ble- believed or said to yourself, man, I don't know if I want to be a part of a church that's full of hypocrites. You ever been there before? Come on, welcome to the club, okay? And I want to say this, yes, the church is full of all kinds of hypocrisy. The funny thing is, is that we've all, we've all added to it. James will help us understand hypocrisy to, to, a, to a different level, more along the lines of this. The word hypocrite is actually, uh, in the Bible, it's a word that means actor, okay? So, it would be as if Brad Pitt says that he is a Christian and portrays that out in his life, acts that way, but fully does not believe it. We call that a hypocrite. However, a lot of people have thrown this term onto Christians who believe and profess Jesus, but don't act the way they necessarily should sometimes. That's not hypocrisy, that's humanity. Do you see the difference? It's one thing for me to not believe something and act like I do. It's another thing for me to believe something and my life not add up to it. Are we, are we getting the picture here? And so this is what James is going to deal with. He is dealing with a crazy church. <laughs> and as we review a list of these problems, does it appear to be much different than today? From the problems that beset the average local church. Do we not have in our churches people who are suffering for one reason or another? Do we not have people who talk one way but walk another way? Is not worldliness a serious problem? Are there not people who cannot control their tongues? Come on, somebody. (laughs) And it seems that James is dealing with some very up-to-date matters. He's talking to you and I. And I think many times we can read a book like this, we can read any portion of the Bible, and we're like, well, man, that doesn't really apply. Well, I want to let you know this morning that it does, and we're going to dig into that. So, with all this in mind, let's dig into the book of James. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It's going to be our text for this morning. James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes and the dispersion. Greetings. Then he says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This morning as we begin our series, Jimmy, I want to speak to you from the subject the paradox of problems. The paradox of problems as we look at joy in the midst of our trials. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for every single person that's in this building this morning. God, I pray that as your church, not the four walls, not the carpet, not the lights, not the sound, but the people. God, as we, as we sit together, as we gaze upon your word, I pray that you would change us from the inside out. I pray that you would shine light on dark places of our hearts and our minds. Pray that you would speak to us this morning, that we would leave this place to another degree transformed, that we would take just one more step closer to you this morning. We love you. We worship you. I thank you for these amazing people this morning. I pray that you would bless them in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody shouted. And everybody shouted. That was a whisper. All right. Amen. Don't get quiet on me this Fourth of July weekend. Come on. What is a paradox? Uh, it's often easier to explain what a paradox is by giving examples. Paradox is used to challenge the mind and make us think about the statement in a, in a new way. It's often used to intrigue question and, and, and thought. And so a couple examples of paradoxical statements are, are this. You can save money by spending it. 
You ever heard that, that before? And some of us are like, no, that's just not true, okay? <laughs> I know one thing that I know nothing. It's a paradoxical statement. I've said that many times in, in my life before. This is the beginning of the end. You ever, you ever heard that before? Deep down, you're really shallow. It's a paradoxical <laughs> thought. Men work together, Robert Frost would say. Men work together whether they work together or apart. George Bernard Shaw would say, what a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. And Oscar Wilde would say, I can resist anything but temptation. Paradoxal thoughts. They can be thought-provoking. They can push us to consider sources and why we believe certain things. But they can be witty statements and fun statements as well. Here are the rules. Ignore all the rules would be one. The second sentence is false. The first sentence is true. That just messes with you a little bit. The only message is, uh, I only message those who do not message me. Some different statements that are considered paradox. In real time, all the men of the house would understand paradox very simply. One word, woman. Right? And all the women equally would say paradox, men. (laughs) Or simple. One of the two, okay? We're still trying to work that out. Paradoxes are everywhere, right? I don't, my, my kids are, are a great paradox to me. I don't understand them at times. They say things to me that, that provoke, and that, that reverse things. It, it, it's confusing. Paradoxes around us everywhere. James gives us the ultimate biblical paradox. He says, my brothers, count it all joy when you face trials. It's the grand paradox. Because that doesn't make sense to most of us. Because most of us don't count it joy when we face trials. We count it trials when we face trials. Right? There's no joy whatsoever. If he was being real, he would have said, hey guys, I know that you're going through some stuff and I get it, so just go through it. But he didn't say that. He wanted to reverse things. He wanted to, he wanted to create some thinking patterns that needed to be changed. And he said, count it all joy when you face trials. James presents to us a paradox. Doubt is not contrasted with certainty, but rather with joy. Doubt is not overcome with quantifiable measures and additives. It's overcome with joy, a joy that James asserts is the product of of praise. Interestingly enough, the word that he uses for joy is not happiness. In the Greek, it's actually the word that helps us understand that the joy that he's talking about is not something that we build ourselves. It's not by having everything in order or working it all out. It's actually joy that is imputed, given to us by the Holy Spirit. You are given this joy as a gift. It's not manufactured. It's not a fake smile. It's not saying things are good when they're bad or bad when they're good. It's understanding that no matter what life looks like in any given circumstance, I can take joy in my trials because I have something from the Holy Spirit that gives me affirmation on the inside so I can walk with strength through my trials. So joy of the Lord is my strength. And so he says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. For James, joy is not the product of circumstance, but rather the most fundamental expression of faith, and that is praise in the midst of our circumstance. You ever seen somebody praise in the midst of their problem? It's a beautiful thing. I'll still never forget a dear lady that we knew back in Phoenix. Older lady, her husband passed away. I want to say it was on a Thursday or a Friday. And uh, amazing couple And I'll never forget watching her walk into service on a Sunday morning, crying, weeping, 
have been going through all this, and this is what, this is what people would say. And even, even me, I said that, man, I'm, su- I'm surprised to see you here. And this is what she said to me. She said, why are you surprised to see me here? Where else would I be? That's what James is talking about. See, a lot of us want to retreat from our problems. I can't be in church. I can't be here. I can't be around people. I can't do this. I can't do that. Why? Because we're allowing our problems to determine our expression. But this, this dear lady, after losing her husband, after many, many, many years of marriage, she said, the only place that I can be is in the midst of worship of my King Jesus because it's in that moment that I receive everything that I need. I'm going to have joy in the midst of my circumstances. My brothers count it all joy. And this isn't a weird thought. Paul would say it, Romans chapter 5, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice, what? What are you talking about, Paul? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. First Peter 1, 6-9, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So this is not a new track of thinking. This is not a new line of thinking for us biblically. It is mirrored all the way down, and Jesus would even say, don't freak out when you face trials. I faced trials. I went through stuff. Don't freak out when you're persecuted. They first persecuted me. So this is a a train of thought that we need to understand at the end of the day. And it's right here in the midst of all of this that James gives us four very important traits if we are going to learn how to be people who can count it all joy in the midst of their their trials. Come on, turn to your neighbor this morning and say, you got to count it all joy. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you don't know my stuff. <laughs> so four traits we must possess in the midst of our trials. If you help me out this morning, come on, every shot number one. Number one, the first thing that we need to have, the first thing that we need to possess that James tells us, he says, a faith-framed attitude. A faith-framed attitude. Well, where do we find that? He says, count it all joy. Count. Be aware. Make a list, pros and cons, count it all joy. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he uses a very, very descriptive word. He says all. Come on, Rashad, all? All. Do you know all means all, and that's all all means? But wait, you don't understand my finances. All. Wait, my marriage isn't all. My job's going to all. I've got this sick, all. I've got this church, they're kind of all. <laughs> right? He's saying, look, you've got to count it all. It all. All of it. You've got to count it all joy when you face trials. And I think for some of us, we try to define trials simply by saying, well, okay, I can, I can be joyful in this trial, this trial, this trial, and this trial, but here is the off-limit zone. Once we get to this type of trial, nope. Once we get to this type of trial, then Jesus is not in it. I've got to figure out something else. It's okay for light trials, right? Have you ever tried to designate your trials like light and heavy? Like that's trial light, but that's full strength. <laughs> this is a full strength trial. This is very trial light. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying all. He's saying all. 
excuse me, James is saying all, not Paul. James is saying all, you've got to count it all. And these realities stand in opposition to each other. At first glance, we don't understand how joy and trials can actually go together, and the answer is found with the count. It's a faith-framed attitude. Come on, somebody, how many of you would agree with me that attitude is everything? Attitude is everything. How many parents in here would agree with me attitude is everything? Right? We're going through it right now with my daughter. My son, he's a lot like me. He's docile. He's very, very loving. Um, he's caring, and uh, he, he loves to just care for people. My, my daughter is a lot like her mom, and so um, <laughs> she's fierce. <laughs> and we're dealing with a little bit of attitude that my daughter is starting to give, attitude with her mom, and she's like starting to ignore and like choose her own way of hearing things and doing things. And, and literally the other day she said to her grandpa, she's like, I'm watching you, like that. And I was like, what do you mean, you're, what, what is going on right now? She's like six going on 16. But then I was thinking to myself the other day, I was like, this attitude's really good because it repels more than it attracts. And with boys, that's going to work awesome. So just keep up the attitude. Keep going for it. We'll keep you at home for a long time. So. But attitude is everything. Come on, how many of you would agree with me on this? I would rather work with bad aptitude than bad attitude. Right? I would much rather work with bad aptitude than bad attitude. Aptitude can be taught, but attitude is something else. And this is what James is saying. You don't have to know how to walk through the trial. We just have to reframe our attitude so we can walk through the trial. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know all the Bible. Listen, a lot of us are like, we can't live this life the way that we need to live this life. I don't know how to, I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know how to pray. I don't, I don't know how I should do this. I don't have faith this way. No, you don't have to know how to do those things. You just have the attitude to say, God, I'm willing to follow you in these things. And then he teaches you day in and day out aptitude. He teaches you how to hold up in the midst of trials. A faith-framed attitude. I got to i got to count. i got to learn to look at my blessings. Come on, somebody needs to write that down this morning. I need to learn to look at my blessings. It's amazing to me that the children of Israel constantly fought with God on his provision, considering the fact that he provided for them all the time. Let my people go. They go. I mean, you would think they would be sold right after the, the sea parts. Right? You think they would be like, well, God's good. So anything he asks, I'm doing it. He parted the sea. But no. That's not how they go. They forget that the sea parts. And they start freaking out. Then you'd think they would get it when food's raining from heaven. But no. They forget about that. So they want more. They want to go back to captivity to get what they got in slavery. That's the mind and the heart of humanity. But if we learn to count, we learn to count what God has done in our life. Look back at the blessings of God. Have you, ever, have you ever done that? Have you just taken account? I love our anniversary, mainly because it's another year of we made it. <laughs> but we get to look back on that year as a couple, and we remember as precisely as possible those things that are good in our marriage. Come on, somebody. This is important because sometimes we've got to count. We've got to look at it. We've got to add it all up. My question to you this morning is, is, do you have a faith-framed attitude? Can you count? The second one is this, every shot, number two? Number two, the second thing that, that James tells us, he says, we need to have a reception-based heart. 
a reception-based heart. He says this, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet. Every shout meet. Come on, every shout meet. Not the meat that you eat, okay? M-E-E-T. This is an interesting Greek word that he uses, and it's actually very fascinating. The word that he uses for meat, the Greek word, is those who you embrace longing to see. So James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. In other words, he's saying, I want you to long and receptively, with arms wide open, greet your problems. Think about that. But we don't do that. We treat our problems like strangers who we would have never allowed to touch us. Right? We run, we shimmy, we shake from, from problems. We don't want to embrace them, but James, this is a hard letter, guys, and I know that going through the summer, it's going to get nitty-gritty into some of these things, but he's encouraging us. What happens if our disposition changes from rejection to reception? Come on, baby, show me what you got. What would that do to our world if we had a bunch of people running around starting to receive things better? A reception-based heart. I'm going to take this trial, I'm going to let it come into my life, and I'm going to work through it. I'm going to walk with God in the midst of my problems. And that's the word that he uses. Literally, the type of embrace, the, the type of embrace that I would give my wife, a longing embrace. One where we're communicating to each other through the embrace. That's the type of embrace that God is calling us to have with our trials. And James's challenges to us is saying, you got to stop running from them. You gotta stop rejecting them. You gotta stop pushing them away. You need to embrace them. You need to walk with them and w- because I'm walking with you. I'm in the midst of them with you. Come on, all the parents in here. And, and if you're not a parent, it doesn't matter because you can get this equation, but there's something so special when you watch somebody, you watch a parent, you watch a grandparent embrace a child in the midst of a problem. And that's what James is saying. In your problems, if you learn to receive them with an open heart, Jesus is going to walk with you. He's going to be with you. He's going to talk with you in the cool of the day. He wants to come alongside of you. And while you embrace, you receive your problems, he embraces you and receives you. And he says, I'm going to be with you through the midst of all of this. And some of us are facing problems. Like Jay-Z, we got 99 problems, period, stop. We're facing them, we're trying to work through them, but we're doing it in a way that only working through them looks like rejecting them. My, my submission to you this morning is this, don't reject them. Embrace them. Embrace them. Have fun with them. <laughs> we all, and I want to labor over this point because I know there's some of us in here this morning who are struggling with this issue. You're struggling with the diagnosis that's been given. You're struggling with the loss that you've gone through. You're struggling with the doubt that has all of a sudden set in and you don't know where it's come from because you've been a good little Christian all your life. You're struggling with big things and you're trying to push it away. You're trying to get away from it. And Jesus is saying, no, no, just meet them. Meet them. Be right there with them. We all love the stories where the cancer patient finds out that they have six months to live, and so they live life to their fullest, and they go for it. But then for some reason, when we're given the same diagnosis, we don't go for it, we wallow in it. 
and it's okay to watch somebody else go for it, but then we forget that we serve the God of the universe to which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And so why do I want to reject my problems? Why don't I meet them full on and say, Jesus, come hell or high water, I'm going to walk it out with you. I'm going to keep on going for it. I'm going to keep on praising you in the midst of the storm. I'm going to keep on believing great things. Why? Because I'm going to count it all joy. I'm going to count it all joy. And so we have to have a reception-based heart, a faith-framed attitude, a reception-based heart. Number three, come on, everybody say number three. Three. We have to have a comprehending mind. James inserts this when he says that we need to know. Verse three, he says, for you know that the testing, you know. What is it that we need to know? We need to know that our faith is always tested in trial. See, when God called Abraham to live by faith, he tested him in order to increase his faith. God allows tests to bring out the best. The enemy tempts to bring out the worst. The testing of our faith shows us that we're walking with Jesus. We'll deal more with this in the the coming weeks. But this is massive. Why? Because we win in the end. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. See, trials rightly used help us mature because God wants to produce some things in our life. So we have to have a a comprehending mind. We have to think through these things. We've got to learn to start, start analyzing the problems a little bit more. In the scheme of eternity, here's a great question. Write this down if you're taking notes before. I do this all the time. In the scheme of eternity, is this problem really that big of a deal? Come on, somebody. (laughs) Think about that. Come on, let's just a little therapy session. How many of you, show of hands, okay, no judgment in this room, okay? How many of you have ever made a bigger deal out of something than what it really was? (laughs) One time, (laughs) right? Somebody says one time. (laughs) Liar. Don't we all do that? Don't we make a mountain out of a molehill, right? I am, by and large, the drama queen in my house. Just as what it is. I'm the emotional one, okay? Everything is a problem. Uh, right now, we moved into this new house, and uh, we have pincer bugs. Have you seen those little pincer bugs? Have you seen those? Now, when I say we have pincer bugs, don't like look at it as like an infestation, like, oh, that's weird. Um, but I told my kids that these bugs in the middle of the night, they get into their ear and they pinch on their brain. And... Uh, <laughs> I did, it was awesome. And then Shiloh's like, really, Dad? I was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. She's like, I'm never sleeping again. So, um, but, um, but we've got these pincer bugs that are, that are in our house, and, at the, and so I am freaking out. So everywhere I see these bugs, I'm yelling in the house, these bugs are everywhere! You ever been there before? No. Eric is like, there's four of them, dude. That's, I'm like, they're everywhere. They're in our cabinets, they're in our carpet, they're in our bathrooms, they're everywhere, they're taking over the neighborhood. But don't we do that to our problems? We measure our problems very inadequately. I want to suggest something to all of us this morning. Let's learn to measure our problems against Jesus. Not against other problems. Not against the way we think. Let's measure it against Jesus. Is Jesus capable of working in this problem? Is Jesus capable? I'm going to have the team come back up. Man, I want to preach right now. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many of you have heard of these guys? Right? How many of you have seen Veggie Tales? Okay, good. So you know the story. <laughs> they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we are not going to bow before you. You're telling us that we've got to rework our belief system, but I'm not going to bow before you. King Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, if you're not going to bow before me, I'm going to stick you in a fire, a really hot fire. The fire that we understand biblically, when somebody would go throw something in there, it would burn the people up that was throwing them in there. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have their moment. They have their, their, their moment to bow before the king, and then they don't do it. They're told on, and so the king says, I'm throwing you into the fire. And there's this interesting transaction that happens between Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is what they say. They say, oh, king, I know that you have the power to do this. And I know that you're about ready to take my life. But we want you to know something that we serve and believe in a greater God who is bigger than even this situation. And even if he doesn't rescue us and you throw us in the fire and we perish, even if he doesn't rescue us, we will still not bow before you. Why? Because no matter what my problem looks like, I understand that on the other side of the problem is a bigger God. On the other side of the problem is a bigger purpose. On the other side of the problem, there's more there. And some of us got to get to the other side of the problem mentality and start realizing your problem may be this big, but you got a Jesus who's this big. He's infinite. His stature is massive, and he's there to be with you in the midst of the problem. So throw me into the fire. Let me burn. Let my problems come. And they embraced it. Why? Because they had a faith-framed attitude. Right? They had a reception-based heart. They allowed themselves to have a comprehending mind about it all. And the last one is this. Number four, they had a submitted will. They had a submitted will. James highlights that for us. If we go back to, the, back to the beginning of it all. Let's read it one more time. Count it. All joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he says, and let. Let this happen. Let it be what it's going to be. See, God cannot build our character without our cooperation. So James encourages us to, to let, let it go, let it be. Submit yourself to God. So that when we walk through problems, when we walk through the nature of life, when we walk through circumstance and situation, we can say like Jesus said, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And this is the hardest one for us. Why? Because submission for us is the great paradox to independence. And here we are as a nation celebrating independence this week. But did you know that the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy? The kingdom of heaven is not about an independent nation. The kingdom of heaven is not about any of that. The kingdom of heaven is about submission. 
a will submitted to the king. Who the Bible says is above every other name, every other king. So this morning, we've got to have a, a different type of framework in our attitudes. We've got to learn to receive things better. We've got to learn to understand things more. But the way that we do this is we submit ourselves, therefore, unto God. And it's in submission that we see His will done on earth as it is in heaven. Come on, would you stand to your feet with me this morning? paradox of problems. James tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. I don't know what your trial is this morning. Maybe for you, you are staring down the barrel of a, of a doctor's report that's so not favorable. Maybe for you, you're coming to the latter years of your life and trying to figure out what purpose is left. But on the quiet opposite, there's many in here this morning across all of our services who are still in the beginning stages of their life and asking the same question. Maybe this morning you're struggling with doubt, fear, insecurity, anxiety. Maybe this morning your problem is bitterness and hatred. I don't know what our problems are, Maybe your marriage is at the end of its rope. Maybe your bank account is at the end of its rope. I don't know what the problem is, but there's a paradox to our problems. This morning, church, we are called to count it all joy as we meet that problem head on in the name of Jesus. Come on, I'm going to ask everybody just to bow your head and close your eyes in this moment.